you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Everybody warm? Good to have you in the house this morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name's Nick. Get the joy of being the lead pastor of this church. And today, the joy of opening up this brand new series with you, The Vine, The Trellis, and The Crow. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Gracious God, we thank you that you have a vision for our life, and that you have not kept that to yourself, but revealed yourself, and along with it, that vision to us in your word. And so help us now uh, to come before you full of your Holy Spirit and full of expectation of what you're going to do in our lives over these next two months. And Lord, would you start that work this morning? Open our eyes, open our ears, lay our hearts bare before you that you might come and minister to us and shape and center us around your son, Jesus. In his mighty name, amen. Well, John Tyson is our speaker next year for the City on a Hill Conference, and he uh, writes about this story in his book called Beautiful Resistance, a prominent moment in the history of the church. It was the 1930s in Germany, which you can imagine was a torrid time as the world sought to understand how to, how to act and respond to the burgeoning crisis that was Hitler and his regime. And the German church was thick in that moment. Hitler wanted to control the hearts and the souls of his people, and uh, the church, sadly, had, had really bought into that and, and gone along with it, compromising to his vision. But there was a small minority of Christians in Germany who had declared that the church was to be loyal to Jesus and not to the state, and Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was a man who was leading that resistance, and his convictions led him to establish an underground Bible college, an underground seminary, almost an underground monastery where people, students would come and and with him study the scriptures, but also share in a common life together so that they might be discipled into the vision that Jesus had for them for their life. 
And there's one particular moment uh, that one author from back then has drawn out from this period where Bonhoeffer had just started the seminary, uh, his friends who were connected to him before this moment started to get nervous for him, started to get worried about him. This is all a little bit too intense and too extreme of a life that Bonhoeffer was leading. And so his friend Wilhelm went out uh, to Bonhoeffer one day to try to convince him and, and suss out for himself. His friend now just bought in to this kind of spiritualism. And so a historian writing at the time writes about a, a rowing trip that Dietrich Bonhoeffer took his friend on at the time. And they reached the, the far shore uh, of the other side of the river and Bonhoeffer led his friend up onto a, a small hill and that hill overlooked a, a German airfield at the time. And their fighter planes were taking off and, and landing. Soldiers were moving around, kind of in disciplined patterns, but very hurriedly. And Bonhoeffer shared how these young Germans were being very disciplined and yet being trained for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. And then Bonhoeffer explained his vision for what he was doing with his life and, and through this Bible college, that his vision was to see a new generation of Christians whose discipline was even stronger than this army because the kingdom that they were serving was far greater. And so he said to his friend, you have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. And Tyson summarizes Bonhoeffer's vision as simply, this must be stronger than that. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wasn't the only one with a vision of the Christian life we can see in the Scriptures, and we're going to see it today, that Jesus himself has a vision for your life, a vision for our life, a vision for his people. See, just like them back then, they were being shaped, formed, disciplined, even discipled, we might say, by the world, by our society. And we now, along with them. And so we're gathering over these next two months, these next seven weeks, to try to step in to the vision of life that Jesus has for us, that we had just read out for us. This vision of fruitfulness and flourishing, this vision of abiding in Him, that we might be able to see come out of us the fruit of a life that is stronger than our cultural formation, a faithfulness that is stronger than our flesh, a loyalty that is stronger than compromise, a rhythm of life that is stronger than the routine that our world calls us into, a fruitfulness and a flourishing that is, inspires more commitment and more joy, more strength than the soulless superficialities that might be offer, on offer to us today. And so just like Bonhoeffer, we're going to look to the Scriptures I'm going to apply uh, this vision to our own lives. How can we live in a way, in the way of Jesus, that sees us flourish and bear fruit for Him? And so this week, my job is to introduce this whole theme, the, the, the meta theme of the series, the vine, the trellis, and the crow, and to talk through the goal of what we hope to accomplish over the next seven weeks. In the weeks to come, we're going to dig into the weeds about what it might actually look like, what changes we might actually make very practically in our lives, what spiritual disciplines, we sometimes call them, 
might we structure our life around so that we can step in and embrace and receive the life that Jesus has for us. Now, this theme that we're hitting on for the next seven weeks, it arises out of this passage that we just had read out for us, John chapter 15. So if you're not there, uh, do come there with me. By way of context, this chapter is a, a famous speech by Jesus to his disciples. He's trying to prepare them for his eventual departure after he's gone through crucifixion, resurrection, and then ascension back to his Father. He wants to prepare them by helping them know their place before him and know the power that's going to sustain them and drive them forward from this moment. And so simply this series, I've kind of had the structure of the sermon handed to me. We're going to talk about three things, the vine and then the crow and then the trellis. Preparation was easy this week. Let's start talking about the vine. Jesus paints this vision for his disciples and he says it here in in verse 1 of chapter 15. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And so Jesus obviously painted a vision through a metaphor, as he often did. And it's a a metaphor of of the vineyard. We see a vision of the vineyard where Jesus is the vine. He is the the source that's connected to the ground, the one bearing the nutrients. He is the, the trunk through which the branches are going to flow. And eventually, fruit will be born. And he tells us that his father, God the Father, is the vine dresser. God the Father is the, the agricultural expert. He, he plants, he prunes, he tends to the grapevines. Then he goes on. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Then in verse 3, he says this. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And so Jesus is going to go on and continue this vision and tease out uh, what it looks like to be branches connected to the vine. But notice that he he, he clarifies something here by kind of immediately coming out of the language of a vineyard and talks about being clean. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, he says. And so just We need to catch up to to what Jesus is talking about. And just two chapters earlier in John chapter 13, uh, if we had read from kind of the whole of the book of John in in one sitting, we'd know that he'd just been talking about being clean. He'd he'd literally knelt down before his disciples and he'd had some water and he had a towel and he started cleaning them. He started washing their feet and he starts to have a conversation with the disciples and he reveals to them that what he's doing in the flesh, what he's doing physically is again a, a, a metaphor for what he needs to do within them. He's not talking about wiping dirt off their body, though he's doing that there in the moment. He's talking about their hearts, their souls, them being clean spiritually before God, cleansed from their sin. And so it's very important that at the beginning of this vision that Jesus is going to set out for us here in John chapter 15, that he clarifies right at the top, Though he is going to talk about our ongoing connection with him, our our life with him, he's going to talk about things that you should do in your life that maybe are different than what you're doing right now. Changes that we should make, effort that we should put in, things that we should do in our lives. It's very important at the top. He he clarifies, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. That is that that great misconception that our culture has today, that, that Christianity has been a nice person, Christianity is about doing good things. It's about putting effort in, changing our behavior. 
Now we know that, that that's not it. Jesus wants to clarify that that's not the vision that he has for our life. Because elsewhere, Jesus teaches us that none of us are inherently good people. And the niceness and the goodness and the behavior modification and our relative moral purity, that that can never make us right before God. And the good news is, is that, that Jesus has come into the world that though we fail, he lived perfectly. That though we live for ourselves, he lived for you and me and then died a death for us on the cross before rising again. And that believing in that message of salvation, by trusting in his work and not our own, it's, it's, it's through that that we are reconciled to God, through that that we are clean. And so everything we talk about for the next seven weeks of, of trying to put in disciplines in our life, we don't do it to make us clean, we do it because by grace, Jesus has already counted us his own. Jesus has already made us clean in him. And so if you're here and you're trusting in the person and work of Jesus, you should know right now, this very moment, in that green chair that you are sitting in today, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Already you are reconciled to the God who made you and loves you and now calls you his own. And if you're here and you're, you're just exploring this whole thing, this whole Christian thing, you're here with a friend maybe, you should know that, that we don't want you to change to accept Jesus. We want you to repent and receive what he's already done for you. That it's not about your works. It's about his in your place for you. His life, his death in your place for you. And so what we're going to go on to talk about today and for the next seven weeks flows from this fountain. The whole series sent, uh, stems from this central trunk. We want to live a flourishing, fruitful life in Jesus because by grace he's already united us to himself. That means, praise God, there is nothing that you can do that need disqualify you from that life. That means that there is nothing that, that you will do that is more powerful than the grace of God to see you clean before him and righteous in his sight. And because Jesus says this, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Praise God. He now wants us to live a life from that cleansing power of his grace, a life close to him, connected to him. And so he goes on to say, after having said that, in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so Jesus tells them, already you're clean and now abide in me. Now that word abide, it means to stay in place, which is kind of why in English we've kind of taken the past tense sense of the term, abode, and we turned it into a noun and we call our houses our abode, where we live, where we stay in place. Our homes is our abode. And so Jesus likewise is telling us here, make me your home. Stick with me. Stay with me. Center yourself in me. 
And it's important to think about what does Jesus mean by by centering ourselves in? What does it mean to abide in him? And to clarify what Jesus means by that, we might think of the way that we refer to people, maybe ourselves, as being self-centered. We don't mean when we say someone is self-centered that they only ever think about themselves, that they don't ever actually think about the bills they have to pay or what to eat or what they should wear or work issues. It's just that themselves inform all other decisions, that the self-centered person passes everything else through the filter of themselves and self-trumps all other loves accordingly. And so in a similar way, in a similar way when, when Jesus says, hey, hey, abide in me, hey, center yourself in me, it doesn't mean that, hey, you should stop thinking about work, you should stop thinking about sending an email, you should stop thinking about the bills you have to pay, stop thinking about your hobbies. You know, the Christian life is now stepping out of the world and kind of sitting in a circle with your legs crossed, kumbaya, my Lord, you know, that, that kind of vision for our life. No, he's not, he's not saying that. He's just saying that, hey, everything that goes through your life should be filtered through the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Everything passes through the filter of Jesus. What Jesus has done what he is now doing to restore all things in the world to himself, well, that should actually trump everything else and order our hearts, our loves accordingly. And so we abide in Christ by literally sitting and reflecting upon what he's done, but far more than that, living our lives in a way that accords with his vision for it. Structuring our lives to ensure that we have space to bring to the forefront of our minds, our plans, our priorities, his mind, his plans, his priorities for us. And in doing so, Jesus tells us, doesn't he? You will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. Now, what Jesus means there by fruit is not kind of some isolated moments of joy, though we hope to have those. Not like we some how have the supernatural Midas touch now and everything we do at work and in life turns to gold and it's just, just kind of we feel the favor of the Lord palpably upon us. Now we know what he means by fruit. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we hear about the fruit of the Spirit. For the last six or seven weeks, the kids downstairs have been learning about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Jesus wants those fruits to be born out in our life, that even though we don't want to think about it, he wants those kind of things to be the things that when the eulogy of our lives needs to be read out for us, it's those kind of things that define us. And it's those kind of things that define us because it's those kind of things that define him. Jesus wants our character to be formed around him. And that's what it means to bear fruit, to become more like Jesus. And so that means that the fruitful life is very different than what we might be discipled into thinking in our world. The fruitful life isn't so much about what you do. It's not so much about what you accomplish. It's about who you are and about who you are becoming. The famous painter Vincent van Gogh once commented on who he thought was the greatest artist in the world. And he said this, Christ alone lived at an artist greater than all artists, disdaining marble and clay and paint. Rather, he was working with living flesh. You see, Jesus is the greatest artist because not only did he mold us and shape us and fearfully and wonderfully knit us together physically, but he's actually doing that right now as he forms us 
around his own character, adding to us love and joy and peace, pruning from us hatred, self-centeredness, anger. Jesus wants to shape you and to change your character to be more like him, that you might be overflowing in the fruit of his character. Now, the author Dallas Willard, who's, who's very kind of prominent in uh, the spiritual formation space, if you ever go to Kurong and go to that section, a lot of it is him. Uh, he talks about this vision of, of the fruitful and flourishing life, that, that often the vision that Jesus painted for us in the Scriptures, it, it gets reduced in our modern day. And this life with Christ really becomes not so much about freedom and joy and stepping into this life of, of kind of fruitfulness. It gets diluted into mere sin management. And so the, the vision that, that Jesus paints here of, hey, hey, abide in me, bear fruit in me, well, actually, it really gets just deduced to the question that we ask in our lives, is it a sin? And we go around our whole life kind of engaging in different things and we just kind of constantly have this thing in our head, is it a sin? Should I be doing that? Yes, no. Is it, is, is it a sin? And so discipleship just becomes trying to minimize sinning. And if we don't have a clear answer, great, let's jump all in to that. And so some parts of the church, progressive Christianity might take that idea of sin management and apply it horizontally and think, hey, we've got to, we've got to call out this, the societal sins in the world. It's other people's sins, those sins in the world we need to work against. Well, fundamentalist Christians might take it and apply it purely vertically and think, hey, we just need to get people to decide for Jesus, to, to book their ticket to heaven. And once you've booked your ticket to heaven, your sin's done. And, and so you just kind of sit back for the rest of your life and wait for the show to start. But in John chapter 15... Jesus has given us here a, a vision for our whole life. That, praise God, he, he deals with your sin. The most important barrier to be dealt with between you and God himself. But he gives us a vision for a vibrant life in connection with Jesus. From that moment of discovering that you fall short of the glory of the Lord and yet Jesus has been righteous for you in your place. From that moment till that moment when you're going to embrace Jesus as you see him face to face. God has a vision for your life of becoming more and more like Jesus, of flourishing, of being fruitful and stepping into the joy and the freedom that he has for you. Willard summarizes the Christian life like this. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. It's a big vision for your life. The process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Your relationships your context, your pressures, your temptations. Jesus took on real flesh like you and me and lived in a real world like you and me, and he lived it perfectly. And that means he could, he could live in any moment, in any context, under any pressures, under any temptation. And so we need his character to do it in our own time, in our own place. We get to meet the real Jesus in the Christian life. We get to walk with the real Jesus for our Christian life until we see him in glory. And so that's the vision. Your life connected to the vine, Jesus. Perhaps like me, you, you know, hey, that's a great vision, but I don't feel the vibrancy of what you're talking about. I don't feel the, the, the sense personally of the, the vision and the flourishing and the fruit. And we know that there are enemies working against us, distractions, deceptions, destabilization, and so this leads us to talk about the crow, the crow 
comes in. Uh, there's another image in the Scriptures, not in, in John 15, but in, in Matthew chapter 13, where, where Jesus is again painting a vision for the Christian life. He does it in the terms of a sower sowing seed along the ground. And he explains later that the seed is, is the Word of God that's sent out into the world. And the vision is that that seed might fall upon good soil. And the seed sprout up and, and bear fruit, some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. And yet, if you know the story, you know that, that actually not all seeds get there. Not all the seeds fall on the healthy, good soil, that sometimes the good news of Jesus is, is thrown out there. And while it's trying to find root in the ground and take, take root in people's hearts, Jesus says the birds of the air, the crow, fly in to snatch the seed from the ground, to stifle that growth. Take away the word of God from people's hearts. And explaining that parable, Jesus later connects that the work of the, the birds of the air, and he says it's just like how the devil comes in and tries to snatch away God's word from us, limiting his work in the world and robbing us of that fruit. Now, throughout church history, God's people have always understood that we have a real enemy. And yet we have, we have multiple that seem to form an unholy alliance against us. And that is that there's the world that walks in different ways to the kingdom of God. There's our flesh that tries to pull us away because we're inherently born in sin. And then there's the devil himself who tries to seek to steal, kill and destroy. Now I know from my own walk with Jesus, I feel like I can, I can feel... The, the danger, the crow element of my flesh very palpably. For you, it might be very different for me. That, that, you know, I, I confess I'm a mid-30s-year-old man and I'm still uh, tempted toward the superficialities of sport in, in the world. And so I have a great vision. You know, I agree with Jesus. Hey, I want to live a, a flourishing, fruitful life in Jesus. And then I wake up in the morning. And particularly at this time of uh, the year... You might know that there's, there's some cricket going on in England right now. So, so I wake up and I think, man, I'm going to step into a, to a fruitful, flourishing day with Jesus. And then my mind says to me, hey, the cricket was on last night. You should check the cricket scores. And so, you know, you go to the phone straight away and you're thinking, oh, I'll just, I'll just quickly check the cricket scores, just, just quickly. And then while you're looking at the cricket scores, you think to yourself, hey, you should find out how that happened. What's, what was the narrative behind all those wickets? How did, how did they actually, what, what, what happened between Australia and England? So you think, I, I better read about that. I better read or, or maybe watch some highlights about what actually happened last night. And then you're reading and watching the highlights. You think, hey, while you're in the sports section, you know, it's actually the transfer season in the Premier League right now. You should check out, were there any big money moves made overnight? And so you, and then, you, then you start moving on to that. And before you know it, you've been, you've been led along the kind of superficiality pathway away from the things that you want to invest your time in and you enter into your day reacting to it instead of proactively stepping in and being shaped by the realities that you know are most formative and most powerful. And so for me, it's more. For you, it might be something else, checking the financial markets overnight. It might be checking what's going on in the news. It might be seeing if you've got any messages on the dating apps. It might be looking at your socials. But all of us are prone toward, to be tempted toward the superficial and away from the weighty, away from what we know is true and meaningful and right and good. Abba Agathon, an Eastern Orthodox monk in the 4th century, he revealed to us that actually it isn't just a 21st century problem because in the 4th century, 
He said, in my opinion, no other labor is as difficult as prayer to God. Every time a person wants to pray, our spiritual enemies want to come and disrupt it. For they know that it is only by deflecting humans from prayer that they can do them any harm. More recently, Pastor John Piper said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook were to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. That's a sting right there. That's a sting that you're feeling. You know, our flesh, our world, and the devil himself, it's, it's that unholy alliance bidding us. Yes, that sounds like a great vision, abiding in Christ, flourishing, but here's some entertainment. Here's, here's something that will, will satisfy and scratch that itch right now in this moment. And before we know it, we see that it, it robs us of a flourishing life. Now, of course, this whole series isn't just about that moment. It's not just about that waking up kind of discipline, uh, morning prayer, devotional time. It's far bigger than that. The, the crow is wooing us to a vision of a safe, comfortable, eastern suburban life filled with fun toys and holidays and workplace recognition and a level of busyness that makes us feel important. And yet, it's devoid of the fullness of the life and fruit that Jesus wants us to have. So we need to guard against the crow. Guard against the schemes of the devil, how he positions the world and he tempts our flesh to distract us from a life lived with Jesus. And so this is where the, the trellis comes in. Let's talk about the trellis. For thousands of years, humans have, have, have built trellises to help plants grow and, and bear fruit. For many thousands of years, this would have been like absolutely everybody in the world knew this and, and engaged in the agricultural society in which we are. And now we've, we've kind of moved into the more knowledge uh, economy. And so gardening is like a hobby. It's a, it's a perk for people who are uh, kind of um, bespoke enough to have the backyard to do it. Uh, but a trellis was this, this vertical uh, kind of structure. And upon the trellis, the vine could grow so that it would have the freedom to, to spread out and then bear fruit. Now, of course, the imagery here breaks down a little bit because Jesus is the vine in John 15, and he needs no support. He is Jesus, fully self-sustaining. And yet that image of the trellis helps us understand that in order to support our connection to the vine as the branches and our bearing of fruit from the branches, well, some sense of structure can be helpful. In the same way, if we're going to protect against this crow swooping in and robbing Jesus' vision for our life from us and step into a fruitful life with him, we actually need to be intentional. And we need to structure our lives and practice rhythms that encourage us to keep going to Jesus, to keep being formed by him in a world that's seeking to form us in a different direction. And so that's what this series is going to be about. And in future weeks, we'll dive down deep into the, the rhythms that we need in our lives to make sure that we abide in Christ and bear fruit? What kind of rhythms do you need in your life to, to avoid that superficiality? What kind of structure do you need in your life that, that Jesus models for us? Because he's lived life before us, that Jesus models for us, that, that we might walk into our worlds with, with the gravitas of the gospel shaping us rather than the superficialities of our society. Now, historically, Christians have called this trellis 
uh, a rule of life. Not rule as in so much of a law that you need to perform, but rule as in uh, a measuring stick, a standard, a rhythm for life that can give you some different points to help keep you centred on Jesus. An intentional plan, a schedule, a rhythm, whether daily, weekly, monthly, annually, to help you reflect, take stock of your life and prioritise the good news of Jesus within it. You see, the reality is that that actually all of us are are walking in a rhythm, whether it's of our own making or of your work life's making or anyone else's making, that all of us are actually already walking in a rule of life and yet we're not conscious of it, we don't don't think about it. I remember when I first started uh, learning to drive, I remember it was on my 16th birthday, I went to Vic Roads in, in Burwood and was able to take my learner's permit test and it was my biggest thing in life at the time and so it was very built up uh, within kind of my, my psyche and it was you had to prove to your friends that you, you, you can now uh, drive and I learned a valuable lesson that day because I remember starkly uh, how I, I went through the test very nervous about it and then great relief I passed the test but I wanted to fool my dad who was outside waiting for me and so as I walked out after passing the test I kind of looked a bit down and said to him oh, man I failed the test. Unfortunately, there was another girl there who, who had also gone through the test, and she had also, she, she'd just passed the test, yet she heard me say that I failed, and so she said to me, oh man, so sorry that you failed. I failed the first time too. And I said to her, oh actually no, I passed. <laughs> and that was an awkward interaction. I learned that time that people are very sensitive when you, when you talk about driving tests and whether people <laughs> passed or, or failed. Uh, but then we got home that day and, and immediately, you've you got, you got, got to use it. you got your license, you've got, you got to use it. So I put the L plates on and headed out with my dad in the car. And I remember that first time driving. Maybe you had this experience too, but if you'd never done it before, you are conscious of absolutely everything. And so I had to be conscious of it. All right, 10 to 2. Accelerator's on the right. Dad, it's on the right. Yeah, that's, that's on the right. Brake, it's on the left. Handbrake, check. Seatbelt check, mirrors, check, and you slowly inch out of the driveway and onto a real road where there are real cars. And, and I remember on the street that I went down, there, there was a car parked on the side of the road. And when there's a car parked side of the road and you've never driven past a car on the side of the road, you don't just go past the car on the side of the road. You veer into the other lane to avoid this massive car that's on the side of the road because you don't know how wide it is when you've never driven past one before. And I started in a manual as well, so it was accelerator, brake, check. I was conscious of absolutely everything. Now, you know how I drive now? I don't even know. I can't even tell you. I don't even know how I got here this morning. I got in the car, I switched off, I was here. I arrived. Completely unconscious of everything. And I tell you that because that experience of going from something being very conscious to something becoming completely unconscious can actually be our Christian experience. So when you first become a Christian, you're kind of conscious of, of every different change that you make. You think, I'm a Christian now. I've got to, I've got to kind of get, get into these new rhythms. I'll go to church on Sunday. Maybe join a, a small group. Oh, see, in the small group, people pray. Pray out loud. That's a bit intimidating. I'll try it. And you kind of fumble your way through it the first time. And then you do it again and again. And you, you think about, oh, I better kind of clean my language up. Better kind of add in some, some Bible reading. Bible, Bible. How do I read the Bible? You're conscious of absolutely everything. And yet, after being a Christian for a while, doesn't what you were conscious of suddenly become 
unconscious. And you never really think about all these Christian things. You just live your life, but now you're living your life as a Christian and you just assume that, hey, I'm unconscious about it, so this must be the Christian life. You find your groove in the couch. You never stop to be intentional about thinking about, is this the Christian life? And so we run the danger of falling in our Christian walk with Jesus into the automations, falling into patterns that actually without thought, purpose, might be driven and shaped more by the crow than by the vine, more by the world, the flesh and the devil than by Christ himself. And so we need to take time to be conscious of the rhythms and patterns of life that we need to set up to help us best flourish in him. Author Rory Shiner says this, every Christian goes to two churches. They go to their Sunday church and they go to the world's church. And both places are heavily forming us and forming us to be one of two things. And so all of us in this room are being formed right now. All of us are being shaped right now. All of us are bearing some kind of outcomes, whether we would call it fruit or not, in our life right now. And we need to ask ourselves, how are we being formed? Because I'm sure many of us are on autopilot. And it's so counter to how we approach other things in the world. Perhaps at work, you're probably highly strategic. You're probably highly intentional. You know, you've got KPIs that you work toward and you sit with your team and you think about, all right, how are we going to meet them? And you get set in, in goals and every quarter you come together. How would we go in the last quarter? What are we going to do in the next quarter? Very strategic. Then some of you people who can boss it in the boardroom, you think about your Christian life and you're a space cadet. And there's no sense of strategy. And there's no sense of intentionality. And yet Jesus wants you to use those gifts for your relationship with him. That you might be intentional about how you're going to grow in him and grow with him. And so the next seven weeks is a great space to do that. Yes, we might get to the end of it and your life might feel exactly the same. And yet what we want to do in these next two months is set up the kind of rhythms in our life that we want to have to propel us into the vision of this life that Jesus has for us. Next week, Joel Deacon from City on Hill Wollongong is going to be here uh, unpacking what it looks like to build a rule of life. Now, as I close, uh, let me bring it back to where it all starts. Uh, There was a, a 17th century Puritan named John Owen, and he wrote this highly influential book called Communion with God. And in it, he sets out some of the, 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 the majesty of this vision that Jesus tells us in John 15, that you and I can actually be in communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That because of the person and work of Jesus, you and me, as fail, finite, and fallible as we are, might be connected to the God of the universe who was here before anything else was, who spoke all things to existence, who even now sustains the world and will bring it into the new heavens and the new earth in time. John Owen, in that book, he said this, Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but the lack of our acquaintedness with our privileges. You see, branches don't will themselves into existence. Fruit doesn't think, I want to live, and then burst forth from the branch. No, branches and fruit, they they grow out of the nutrients from the vine. They only come from, from the vine itself. He Jesus is the source of our lives. 
and any fruit to come. And so our flourishing in Christ, it doesn't sit at the other side of us becoming the people that, that we want to be, of us becoming more moral and more hardworking and even more disciplined, putting in more effort. No, it comes from us thinking, dwelling, worshipping, living life in Jesus. Already you are clean because of the word that I spoke to you, Jesus said. And so John Owen here says, hey, you need to think on that and that will help you become this kind of person rather than thinking about how you fall short of the person that you want to be. The most important reality in the world is that God has looked down upon you, set his affection upon you, loved you in a way that he sent his own son to live, die, and rise again. God has wrapped up your life with what he is doing in the world in reconciling all things to himself. He wants you reconciled with him as well. Now he says that you get to live your life connected to the God of the universe. You get to do this thing called life. And at every single moment, whether it's a trial, whether it's a triumph, whether it's the glory, whether it's the garbage, whether it's sadness and suffering or joy and celebration, you get to do every moment of your life with Him. And there is never a moment in your life where you are separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is never a moment where God Himself is questioning whether He should keep you on the team. There is never a moment where God is regretting having called you up and given you a new heart into the team. At every single moment of your life, His heart, His wisdom, His righteousness stretched out toward you, on offer toward you. John Owen says, think on these things. Get acquainted with these things. The privileges that you have in Jesus the love that he has for you, that he's not going anywhere. It doesn't go up and down like the markets. It is completely consistent and faithful and full forever. As we get acquainted with these things, our heart is going to be so full of gratitude, so full of thanks, so full of worship. Fruit just starts bursting out of us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Abide in me, Jesus says, and then you'll bear fruit. And yet apart from him, we can do nothing. And so I'm going to pray in a moment. Before I do that, I'm going to give you a moment to, to, to do the thing that Jesus calls abide in Christ. I'm going to give you about, about a minute. And perhaps for you, you need to bow your heads and close your eyes. Perhaps some of you need to look up. Whatever you need to do. I want you to just pray and process, how am I being formed toward you, Lord? What is it that is, that is forming you in your life right now? Some of which you need to prune out of your life. Others you need to dive in more of as it's good and right. But abide in Christ right now. Think upon him and what he has done for you. And in a moment, I'm going to pray for us.
Gracious God, we draw near to you in this moment and ask that you draw near to us. God, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would personally reveal to us even now where our souls are at before you. Reveal to us what's been happening in our hearts. Help us see the trajectory of our formation, the lies that we're believing, the distractions that we're fascinated by, the priorities that we've fallen into. And help us as we do to be freed from the anxieties and the restlessness within us and toward a peace and a rest that comes with abiding in you. Lord, all that is getting in the way of becoming who you call us to be, Lord, we pray that you might come and reshape us and remake us. That today and in these weeks to come, Lord, you might be forming us to step into the kind of life that you would live if you were us. And so we pray for these next two months of our lives. Lord, we pray that you might do something great in us that leads us toward a flourishing and fruitful life in you. Form us more than the world. Shape us away from our flesh and toward your vision for us. Do a work in our hearts by making us more conscious of your presence, of your power to save us and to sanctify us. Help us never to forget or ignore the great privileges that you give us. Privileges that that center around our having been united with you. And so we thank you, Jesus, for your life. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. And we thank you for your faithful love. Change our lives with your love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.